You know, there are great photographers who have discovered that there is a certain art to the black and white photograph. And um, the reason is because in that photograph, there are shades of light, there are shades of darkness. It is the juxtaposition of those two. Do we have that slide? Hopefully we'll get that up. Um, that, there it is. This is one of my favorite um, photographers by the name of Ansel Adams. And, uh, you know, he specialized in black and white photography. And, like, and I love this because we used to camp when our kids were children. We used to camp at Yosemite. And, uh, but uh, that was one of his favorite things to photograph. But if you just notice just the light, the darkness, the putting together of those two, and the contrast that's formed is what really makes that photograph. Um, and I think that as we look at our story here today, what we see is the contrast between light and darkness. We see an amazing expression of a devoted disciple who just radiated light from her attitude, her actions, and contrasted to that, we have an insidious darkness uh, that was also right there, right bold and up front. The two of these Matthew contrasts in his gospel, and I think it's, that's the reason to show us. But what's interesting to me is that even through what would have been considered at this time as Jesus is nearing the passion, as he's nearing that moment in history where, as Jesus would say, the power of darkness. It was the power of darkness that, that, was, in, that was in control, it would seem, at that point. Although, in all of it, God was in control, you see. And I think that that is what is such an amazing thing as we all go through things in life Times of light, times of darkness, times of good, times of evil, times of good, good times, bad times. And yet, through it all, it is a sovereign God who is weaving things together to ultimately bring about, you know, the picture that he desires to show each of us. The, the, the thing that he desires to do with each of our lives. And so, we're going to look at that here today. Matthew chapter 26. Now, it was Tuesday evening... And um, you can turn that off now. Thank you. <laughs> Although it's, I don't want them to be distracted. You know, they keep staring at the picture now. And they won't listen to anything I say. Uh, it's Tuesday. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> okay, you guys, quit messing with me. Now, Jesus had given this amazing message on the Mount of Olives called the Olivet Discourse, you know. And, and, uh, and, and then he said, and it came to pass, chapter 26, that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he had said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and elders of the people assembled at the palace of, of the high priest who was Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So Passover was 
in two days. That was on Thursday. Now on Wednesday, the religious leaders gathered at the home of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery or by deception. Now that should have been a clue right there that something is not right here, okay? These are the, these are the ones who are in charge of, of executing justice uh, for the nation, for the religious nation of, of Israel. Um, and, and yet they were afraid that if they apprehended Jesus during the, the feast when there were so many people, that there would be an, a revolt uh, because there were so many people that thought that he was a prophet, even that he was the Messiah. He had already made his triumphal entry and they had hailed him as the Christ. And, and so, you know, they decided to do it by deception in darkness, in the cloak of darkness, which should have told him right there that something was wrong, that this is not right. Because if it was really right, then God would be with them and they would be bold. But the reality of it was it wasn't right. And uh, they were just trying to do anything that they could to, uh, t- to get rid of Jesus. Um, now, they didn't want to do it during the Passover. Now, the, the Passover, of course, was pointing back to the exodus out of Egypt when God delivered the people from the bondage there of slavery. And they had to kill the Passover lamb, and, and all of this, was, which was this great celebration. But, you see, little did they know that even though they didn't want to crucify Jesus on the Passover, there was nothing they could do about it. <laughs> because no plan, no counsel will go against the Lord and his will, okay? God determined that his Passover lamb, the one that the old Passover lamb back in Egypt was pointing to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that that Passover lamb was going to be crucified during Passover to fulfill the type or the foreshadow, you know, that that he is the Lamb of God. So it didn't matter what they were trying to do. God was going to overrule whatever. You know, and that's, that's the endlessly frustrating thing if you ever decide that you're going to resist God. <laughs> it's just Talk about futility. Uh, so, now when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Now, this didn't happen at this time. This happened, according to John, in his gospel, this happened six days before the Passover. It's now two days before the Passover. This happened the Saturday night, the night before Jesus made his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So why does Matthew put it here? And Mark does the same thing. Well, as you'll see, there's a very strong contrast between what this woman does and what Judas does. I mean, there could not be two people that were more opposite than Mary, who we know it's Mary, and Judas. Now, 
John tells us in chapter 12 of his gospel that they were having dinner at the house of Simon the leper, but it, Lazarus was there. Now, Jesus had already raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was the brother of Martha and Mary. And so they were all eating dinner together uh, there. And it was Mary who got a pound of oil of spikenard and she brought it out and it was very costly oil. And she poured it upon his head and she poured it upon his feet. John tells us that she then wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. And what was so amazing about this is that this oil, you know, why in the world would she have something so expensive? These did not look like uh, very particularly, you know, rich people. But this particular oil of spikenard was worth a, a year's wages. I mean, imagine that. Imagine having some possession in, in, in your household that was worth a year's salary. And, G, and, and Matthew, or Matthew tells us that Mary took it and she, she poured it out on Jesus. And John tells us that the fragrance filled the entire house. You can imagine. It was an amazing act. It was a shocking act. I mean, who would do something like that? And, and it was because of that, that that there immediately was criticism. And the disciples all sort of joined in and said, why this waste? Well, we know that John tells us the ringleader of this was Judas. And Judas said that, well, this could have been sold for 300 denarii, that's 300 days wages, and given to the poor. But John tells us that he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. He said it because... He was a thief, and he kept the money box, and he would help himself to it whenever he wanted. And so his motivation was, we could have sold this and stuck a bunch of money in the money box, and we would have been happy campers. You see, he was sort of the treasurer of the group. Talk about, I don't know why. <laughs> that's, like, that's like, you know putting the Doberman Pinscher in charge of, of the stakes or something, you know. Uh, but he was. And John points this out. And, but, you see, when he said this, everybody else said, yeah, that's a waste. Why would she do that? That's just like this way too extravagant. And they all sort of jumped in on the bandwagon criticizing Mary for this extravagant act. You see, they didn't know at the time what Judas's true character was. You know, it wasn't like Judas had like a t-shirt that said B on it for betrayer. You know, it wasn't like that. There, nobody knew that, that, that this was in Judas's heart to do. Nobody could perceive it. And I think that that's, that tells us a lot because I think we, you know, we tend to see, you know, in movies or whatever, he just sort of many times just seems portrayed as, you know, something's a bit off. I don't think anybody knew. Nobody had a clue what was in his heart. 
And so they, they all just said, yeah, that makes sense. Why, you know, that, this could have been sold. We could have fed the poor. And Jesus was aware of it, it says, and he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Now Mary is a very interesting person, okay? You know, we see her at three times in the scripture. The first time we see her, uh, it's at another meal, right? Martha, her sister, is, is busy uh, in the kitchen, making the food, serving, not a problem, except that when Mary didn't show up to like be the sous chef or whatever, you know, uh, instead Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet as he was teaching and she was just soaking it up. And, you know, of course, Martha comes in and, and she's getting, you know, yeah, I'm sure that the pots and the pans were getting really loud in the kitchen, you know? You ever experienced that, men? Uh, <laughs> when your wife's not happy about something, you know, boom, you know, it's like things are being set down. And, you know, Martha's just getting mad because where's Mary? She's not here. I'm, she's left me to do all of this work by myself. And she finally comes to Jesus and and. and and accuses him, really. He says, don't you care, Lord, that my sister has left me to do all the work? You know, and, and so Mary just had to sort of, you know, say, say, take a chill pill, Martha, you know. You're anxious, you're worried about many things, but only one is needed. Mary has chosen the better part. It's not going to be taken from her. But the point was, is that she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. Listening to what he was saying. Second place that we see Mary is is when um, Lazarus had died, her brother. And Jesus finally came four days later, you know, and, and when he came, she went out and, and, and met him, fell at his feet. We always see Mary at, at the feet of Jesus. She fell at his feet and she said, you know, Ma Lord, Master, you know, if you had been here, uh, that my brother would, would not have died. And she just poured out her heart upon the Lord. And now, here's the third thing. You know, she, she's, now she's pouring out the most expensive possession she has. It is thought, you know, what was she doing with something that expensive? It is thought that perhaps she was holding on to it for her wedding day, her wedding night. We don't know. It's pure speculation, but it would make sense. And here, she pours the best thing she has to offer out on the Lord. And Jesus says, look, you leave her alone. Because, yes, the poor, you know, Jesus taught that, that they should give to the poor. But he said, you're going to have the poor always. Me, you're not going to have always. And she has done a beautiful thing here. She has anointed me for my burial. You see, nobody else got it. Jesus had been telling them that he was going to Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed, that he would be crucified. Nobody else was really listening. Mary, the one who sat at the Lord's feet, understood. She understood what was going on. She saw what was happening. 
And therefore, she took advantage of this opportunity. She seized the moment to express her love for Jesus, to pour out on his feet. You know, and I I just love that. I love the fact that, you know, we can be very pragmatic about things at times, but the Lord looks at our heart. He looks at the motivation behind our heart. And, you know, I just, I watch it with my, I watch it with my, my wife, you know, when, when grandkids are concerned, <laughs> when, when her, chil- where her children are concerned, you know, she loves to just lavish whatever she can on her family. And why is that? It's because love, true love, knows no bounds. She poured it out. She poured it out. Folks, you know, we talked about this, this project, this building project. And I've really been praying. I, I am, I've been praying because my heart is into this. I mean, I, I just want to see the Lord do a marvelous work, and I want to see him get the glory. But it's also been a thing where I'm just praying. I even told Cindy what what I'm praying, but I am praying that God enables us to give an amount that just seems ridiculous right now. But I'm praying, I'm trusting the Lord. Now, whether or not that amount happens, because it's ridiculous, (laughs) but I'm trusting the Lord to, to enable us to give above and beyond what we would ever think possible. And why would I do that? It's simply because my heart is into this. My heart is into the Lord. My heart is, is wanting to see him glorified through whatever, however many people are touched on this property over the years for generations to come, you see. You know, and that's the thing, is that it's just where your heart is, you know, as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be also. And it's very clear that Mary's heart was into the Lord. Absolutely. So, now, Jesus went on to say, Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Okay, the fact that we're talking about this today. Okay. You know, they were all like, oh, can you imagine this waste? Oh, this could have been sold and given to the poor. But here, who are we talking about today? 2,000 years later, Jesus said, wherever this gospel is preached, this story will be told as a memorial to her for what she did. And I love the fact that the Lord does that. By the way, anything that we do for the Lord from a heart of love The Lord will see to it that we are remembered. He keeps a record of all of these things. And you talk about just, uh, you know, an honorable mention here for this woman. But you know what? There are things that you have given to the Lord, your time, your efforts, your talent, your treasure, just your heart, that you've given in, in ministering to other people, 
And I think sometimes we are harder on ourselves than the Lord ever is because the Lord looks at the motivation of our heart. Even if we don't come out just right like we wanted to, the Lord looks at the motivation of your heart and the Lord rewards accordingly. And his rewards are eternal. And so Jesus said, you know, she's done a good thing. It, wherever this gospel is preached, this will be told as her memorial. It's interesting. Jesus, this is the only time Jesus talks about a memorial. It wasn't a building. It wasn't a statue. It was just the mention of what she did. Well, then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Notice here the difference. Now, it is thought by some that, you know, that Judas, understanding that sort of, you know, Jesus sort of rebuked Judas here in what he said, you know, about how it was such a waste and all. And, you know, he envisioned himself as being the treasurer of this new kingdom. And that was going to be very lucrative for him. And we know that he really cared a lot about money. And so what does he do? What a contrast. Here, Mary gives all that she can give to Jesus. Judas, on the other hand, goes to the chief priest and says, What will you give me if I betray him to you? See? What will you give me? Total difference. You know, I, I, would, I will say that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those people that long to give to others, and there are those who long to take from others. Which are you? Are you a giver or are you a taker? See, God's a giver. Absolutely. So loved us that he gave his only son. Judas was a taker. And this is manifested here in this action, this betrayal. Um, And what was the price he settled on? 30 pieces of silver. Do you know that that was the same price that if you had an ox and your ox went and gored your neighbor's servant, then you would have to pay him 30 pieces of silver. It was the price of a, of a dead slave. Compensation for a dead slave. That was the value that Judas placed upon Jesus. What a contrast. And it makes me wonder... How much do we value Jesus? How important is he to us? What, on the scale of our interests and priorities, where is Jesus? You know, we can, we can value things, we can appreciate things, or we can discount or depreciate things, you see? Judas depreciated Christ. 
He cheapened his value. It was, it was as though he was selling Jesus at a garage sale, you know? No value there. And I think that, that the amount of value that Jesus has to us personally determines so much. Is there anything that we value more than him? Well, it's interesting. Judas was numbered with the other disciples. Jesus chose him. Understand that Jesus chose him and knew him from the beginning, knew that he would betray him, and yet he never breathed a word of this. Nobody ever knew. Imagine that. Imagine living with the guy that you knew was going to betray you and never breathing a word of it to anybody else. Jesus chose him knowing because it had to happen this way. And yet, even though it had to happen this way, God would use Judas, God would use his betrayal to get Jesus on the cross, to pay the price for all of our sins. Yet still Judas had his responsibility in the matter. And this is the amazing, curious, mysterious thing about man's free moral agency, his responsibility, and God's sovereignty. Both work together. We may not understand it. I can't explain it. You're not going to understand it. You will blow brain fuses trying to figure it all out. But the reality of it is, it's all true. He, ha- he was, he, nobody made him do this. This was in his character, his nature. He made the choices. But then God used it to accomplish his greater purpose. So, now, Judas had been given these amazing privileges. I mean, think about this. He was one of the 12. And yet, having great privileges does not make one's heart right with God. You can can raise children in your household. You can... Give them the same upbringing. You can do every. You can be absolutely the perfect parent and never show favoritism. You know, and all of this. And one child will raise, be raised one way, and another will be raised a completely opposite way. One will be very uh, compliant, obedient. The other will be absolutely the opposite. Having privilege is no guarantee of a change of heart. See? None at all. I mean, we ought to train him in the right way, but it's no guarantee. And Judas had all the privilege, but his his actions showed that he was never converted. His heart was never changed. And you may be sitting here today. You have received the privilege of living in this country, of, of, of having the word of God so, so accessible, of having good teaching, of having a place of fellowship, of prayer. So many privileges that we have received And yet you could receive all of those things. You could come, you could be a part, and yet never be personally converted. That was Judas. Never have a 
personal change of heart. Never genuinely repent and believe in Christ. And you could have a form of godliness. You know, you could go to church, you could go through the motions, but deny the power of God in transforming your life, changing you, so that you're born again, you're born of the Spirit, you're a new creation in Christ. That's the power of God that does that. But there are people that just go through the motions and their hearts never change, they're not converted. They may profess to be Christians, but they're not following Christ. They're not obeying his commandments. And there will be many false professors, just like Judas, a false professor. But there will be many who are exposed on the day of judgment. As Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But it's not just those who say Lord, but it's those who do the will of my Father. And many will come to me on that day saying, didn't we do all these things? And I will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Obviously, there was no conversion. There was no emptying of the heart before the Lord. Jesus never knew them. There was no trust, heartfelt trust that led to repentance and change. And therefore, Jesus says, I never knew you. So, it is interesting to me that they, the other disciples were unaware that Judas was a phony. And, um, you know, there may be phonies. There may be phonies here today. You, you may think you're fooling me. Hey, I'm the, probably the easiest person in the world to fool, okay? Because <laughs> I want to believe the best about everybody, you know? I, I try to, to be discerning, you know? I have to pray, God, help me be discerning because I just want to believe the best about people, you know? But so what? So you fool me? Big deal. That's not going to get you any great brownie points or anything, you know? God knows your heart. God knows my heart. We can't hide from anything from God, which is why it's crazy for us to ever try. But in, in time, the fruit will show up. The fruit showed up with Judas. And as Jesus said, you know, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. You will know them by their fruit. And they came to know who Jesus was ultimately. Now, I believe the case of Judas should be a beacon to the whole church. And we should consider him and pray, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be any offensive way in me. And let us resolve by God's grace that we will not be content with anything short of genuine heart conversion. And you will see it, you and I will see it when we are convicted over our sins. (laughs) If you're convicted over your sin, that's a good sign that the Holy Spirit is there because if you're not convicted over your sin, then that's where you really need to be very concerned. So, Judas did the deed. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread... The disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, Teacher, 
The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, on Thursday, there were preparations that needed to be made for the Passover meal that evening. Luke gives us more details about how they prepared the place for where they would have the Passover. Uh, Luke 22, 7 says that they came, then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room and there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. So Luke gives us some interesting details. First off, it was Peter and John that were the ones that were sent to go prepare the room. And Jesus said that there will be a man carrying a pitcher of water uh, and going into a house. Well, that was unusual because usually it was the women who carried the water. So, you know, so, so they go and they see it just like Jesus said. There's the guy, they go up. The, and now Jesus said that there would be a large furnished upper room. Now, it's likely that the owner was a believer because uh, he made the room available as soon as they said that it was for the teacher, um, or it's possible that Jesus previously made arrangements with this man about using the room. Uh, we don't know. It doesn't say. But clearly, Jesus did have foreknowledge because how in the world would Jesus know that right when Peter and John would get there, this guy would be like going across the street, carrying a pitcher of water, going up into a house, you know? <laughs> so, so when they see it, you know, they're just like, oh, you're the dude. <laughs> okay. But they prepared the room for this meal. Now regarding, they also had to prepare the food on that Thursday. Now regarding the food, Warren Wiersbe says this. He said, Peter and John would have had to secure the bread and bitter herbs as well as the wine for the feast. They would have had to find a perfect lamb and then have had the lamb slain in the court of the temple and the blood put on the altar and then the lamb would be roasted whole and then the feast would be ready for that evening. So when evening had come, verse 20, he sat down with the 12. Now as they were eating, he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Now, this is where, you know, they would have gone through the, the typical uh, Passover Seder 
You know, that the Hebrew word for Seder means order, according to, to Exodus chapter 12, but then they, would, they added to that the, the four glasses of wine and, and the, uh, the other things that, that the Jews do uh, for their Passover feast. They had hand washings, they, they had the breaking of the matzah, and, and then they would, they would give blessings, they would sing the Hallel Psalms. All of these things went along with this Passover. So they did all, all, of, all the things that they would normally do for the Passover meal, but then at the end, Jesus drops the bomb, okay? Now, now he had said earlier that he would be betrayed, but he never said that one of you will betray me. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being at, at, at your dinner table with your family, you know, and you're, the head of the household says, one of you here sitting, eating this meal with me is going to betray me to my death. Wow. They were shocked. They were sorrowful exceedingly. But there was also a certain humility about them because they were like, Lord, is it I? And I think that, you know, that 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 sort of understanding about one's vulnerability, one's weakness is a good thing. We ought to all have uh, a deep awareness of our own weaknesses. That's a good thing. Because if you're aware of your weaknesses, then that will cause you to lean all the more on the strength of the Lord. Amen? But beware when we think we stand lest we fall. So they're all like, Lord, is it I? Am I going to do this thing? And and so it's interesting. Again, we get sort of more details from John's gospel. Now, John tells us that he was, he was reclining with his head. You know, they would recline is, is how they would eat. And his head was, was there right at the, the breast of Jesus. And, and, and Peter motions like, you know, just like, ask him. You know, it's like, who is it? You know, it's like, I can just imagine seeing, you know, John's like, so, so John's like, you know, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, it's, it's the one it's, it's, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. They thought maybe he was going out to, to buy something or whatever. But John knew. John knew who it was. And it's interesting that, you know, at this point, Satan entered him. Now, prior to this point, obviously, Satan was tempting him, no doubt. There was that influence, that satanic influence. And I don't, we don't, you know, how much of that actually happens with us? Probably Satan doesn't actually tempt us, but maybe he's got demons doing his business for him. And then we have our own flesh. That's a big enough problem. <laughs> but here at this point, Judas had made up his mind. He had struck the deal. He had made the bargain. He couldn't go back on it now. And at this point, Satan enters him, really takes possession of him at this point. 
And it says, John says that he went out into the darkness. Think about this. He's been in the darkness of night ever since. How tragic. Now, it was interesting because earlier, when Mary anointed Jesus with the costly oil, Judas asked, why this waste? But if you want to talk about waste, talk about Judas. What a wasted life. In fact, Jesus would say, none of, no, in his prayer in John 17, he said, none of them are lost of those you've given me, Father, except the son of perdition. That literally means the son of waste. And Jesus said it would have been better for him had he never been born. A wasted life. But you know what? That's not only true of Judas, that is true of anybody who doesn't come to know Jesus Christ. You talk about a waste, a wasted life. A life that is destined for eternal separation from God. A life that has been given so much potential and yet wasted. Wasted because they insisted upon going their own way rather than trusting Jesus for their salvation. And that's true of so many people. Wasted lives. It would have been better for them had they never been born. Than to, to, to miss the salvation of Jesus Christ. To live their life, you know, it doesn't matter. As Jesus said, look, you could be rich. You could, you could have everything you ever wanted. You could meet all of your goals materially. But Jesus said, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? It would be better for you that you had not even been born. Right? Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So now Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. It's interesting that word Eucharist means gratitude. I kind of like that. It's the gratitude. It's all about the gratitude of what Jesus did for us to save us. And this is, he, he's showing here the fulfillment of this type, this foreshadowing of, the, of Exodus and the, the Passover. And it was all ultimately, remember, when they left uh, Egypt, the, the, the way that the death angel passed over them was to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts and, and uh, the, the, the upper cross beam, the lintel of their houses. And, and then that angel would see the blood there. And if they were just simply inside, he would pass over. And likewise, you know, Jesus, the Passover lamb, 
When we, when we turn to Him, when we trust in Him, His blood is on the, the door frames of our hearts. And that's what matters. It's not how good you are. It, it's, it's, do you have the blood over your heart? And then the death passes over. The death that you deserve, that I deserve as the punishment of my sins. Jesus took it. And this is what we celebrate. Every time we do communion, every month, you know, we do that. Um, the communion elements, the bread, which is the, the unleavened bread, the matzah, and the wine or the grape juice. Now, the Catholic Church teaches that the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ. This is known as transubstantiation. That's a big million-dollar word. <laughs> so every Mass is a renewed sacrifice of Christ. That is, Christ is ultimately, you know, that's his blood, that's his body, you are partaking of it. Now, the problem with that is, is that Jews were forbidden to drink blood. So if it actually becomes the blood of Jesus, there's a problem there. Um, moreover, it's not like Christ is dying over and over again. In which case he would have to, if that is literally his blood, and that is literally, and that's what they teach, that it literally becomes his blood and, and, and body. But here's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. One sacrifice, one offering, one time on the cross, Jesus died, and in so doing, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Folks, that is what we cling on to. I pity the poor people who are striving by their own works to somehow be perfect before God and you will never, ever, ever get there because you cannot be justified by your own works. You'll get so far and then you, you know, you'll be doing this all your life and you'll blow it one time and you're done. <laughs> but Jesus perfected those forever who are being sanctified, those who trust in him through the one sacrifice. So, so we don't believe, we don't teach that it actually becomes the literal blood and body. We teach that the bread signifies his body that was broken for us. The, the, the cup signifies his blood that was shed for us. And we're glad to remember these things in gratitude for the fact that the Lord has justified us, perfected us in the sight of God because we have believed in him. Amen? And that's why Jesus said, Look, do this in remembrance of me. Because as often as you do this, you know, you're proclaiming my death until I come again. But it's also interesting, Jesus said here, he said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So we come, you know, we'll, we'll partake of communion and, and all that. Jesus is abstaining until he, he has it with his bride. And so we look forward to that too. 
we not only look back to what Jesus did on the cross, we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? Well, it says that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They would sing from the Hallel songs, psalms, the, the, and they are songs, the, the Psalms 113 to 118. Now, Psalm 113 begins like this. You know, well, I, don't you wish you had a recording of Jesus singing with his disciples on the way, you know, on the way to the Mount of Olives that night? As they're singing these songs of praise. Psalm 113 begins like this. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. Think about this. Jesus is singing this. I wish we had the tunes. We don't. Jesus is singing this as he's going to the cross. We have Mary's amazing act of devotion. We have Judas's terrible act of treachery. But the greatest of these, the greatest light, is what Jesus did. The laying down of his life, the singing of a hymn of praise at the time that he's going to die for our sins, to become sin for us, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And how can we not trust that Savior? And how can we let anything come between us and Him? Any pet sin, any cherished thing that we would put on a pedestal above Him, how could we do that? He's worthy of our praise. So what are our takeaways here? Four things. Number one, how much do I value Jesus? Number two, what can I pour out upon him? Now I talked about you know, money, but gosh, that's, that's, that's a minor thing compared to pouring our hearts out upon him pouring our love out upon him. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for me? What does it mean that, that I would like? Now, no, another, thing, what, another thing to pour out upon him is like what Mary, she poured out her heart when she was perhaps he was sorrowful for sure because her brother died, maybe angry. She didn't understand. Why weren't you here, Jesus? If you were here, you'd still be alive. She poured out her care upon the Lord. And that's what Peter says, casting your care upon him because he cares for you. Are you willing to pour out your heart upon Jesus? That's part of it. What can I pour out upon him? Number three, have I experienced a genuine heart conversion? Has my heart been changed? Do I know I'm born again? And fourth, is there some cherished sin that would cause me to betray my Lord? 
Let's pray. Before we do, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to invite our, our prayer team to come forward. And I really want you to just say, Lord, is there something I need to change in my life? Is there something I need to get right? Is there something I need to pour out upon you that I have not been willing to do? So Lord, speaking to you about something that, that he's saying this thing, you know, maybe it's the thing you got to give up. Maybe it's the thing that he's saying, look, I, trust me in this. I'm calling you to this. Don't be afraid. Don't hold back. But is he, it's like that finger in the chest, you know. It's that the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, he won't go away. But he won't force you either. He won't force you. He'll respect your decision. But why would you withhold yourself from the one who loves you the most? So we're going to sing this song. I'm going to ask our prayer people to come forward. And I'm going to ask you... If there's something in your heart that you know you need God's touch, you need to make things right, or you need to pour something out on the Lord, that you come forward and pray and just say, Lord, here is what I need to pray about. Would you pray with me? And we want to do that. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence, God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your example to us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for laying your life down for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would be preeminent in each of our lives, in each life here. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know that they know you, that today would be the moment that they step forward and enter through the narrow gate and say, here I am, Lord, receive me. I trust you, forgive me, make me a new creation. And I pray for those of us, Lord, that you are calling us perhaps to a, a new calling, a new step of faith, a venture of faith, Lord. I pray that we would not hold back. I pray that if there is anything, Lord, in our hearts or lives that would hold us back from your best, Lord, that we would shed that today, casting it off and embracing that which you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.